Good morning, Open Door. It's great to be here with you this morning. For those that don't know, I'm from Australia. So I've developed a little bit of a custom the last few times where I try and find some kind of word or some way that I say something that's most likely going to get a comment or a, or a look. And so I'm just going to put it out there now so that we can all laugh about it now and not while I'm doing it. And so the title of, of today's message is called The Messiah is Here. Can we get that up on the on the screen there when you're ready there, Rob? The Messiah is here. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking that up word by word so that I don't do something that we Australians do that I didn't realize we did until um, my American wife brought it to my attention. Now, there's something that happens. I think it happens in, in England as well, where if a word ends in a vowel or a vowel sound, and then the next word that follows it starts with a vowel, we do this thing where we add the letter R onto the end of the word. So if I wasn't conscious of, of what I'm saying right here, I would say, the Messiah is here. And, and it would sound like I'm saying Messiah. But I think maybe what happened when all the convicts came over to Australia <laughs> is... I mean, they were on boats and there was probably a lot of um, alcohol involved. And, and so maybe over time, speech just got a little slurred and, and, and we just kind of decided an easier way to do it would just be to mash everything together and adding that little R in there helps us do that. And so I didn't even know I did that. And so like my whole family, when they refer to, to Jenna and Caleb, they will say every time Jenna and Caleb. Without a doubt. So it's Caleb and Jenner from now on. Um, so I thought that'd be funny. So we're, we're in a series at the moment called Real Jesus, Real People. And we're walking um, exegetically, verse by verse, through the book of Luke and having a great time doing that. And so where we're at right now, if you want to just be ready in, in your Bibles, is where we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. In we're going to be looking at verses from verse 14 all the way through to the end of the chapter. But we're mainly going to be camping out um, from 16 through to 30. But if you could just have that ready, that's where we're going to be hanging out today. And so just to give a little bit of context to where we're at in, in the sermon, in the message today... The, the story that comes directly before the verses we're going to be looking at this morning is the temptation of Jesus. And it's a phenomenal story where Jesus, um, he's just been baptized and there's that amazing scene where the heavens open and the spirit of the Lord descends on him like a dove. And then, and then the narrative goes that he goes into the wilderness and he's tested um, by Satan with three different tests. And, and, and the end of the story is that he walks out victoriously. In Romans one twenty three, we read that when man first sinned back in Genesis, that it, it says that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals 
and creeping things. Something pre-fall, pre-sin was given to man. Something called the glory of God. The image of God was placed in us. And when we decided to rebel against God, we, we actually gave away the authority that he had placed on us. And, and, and I like to think about that as the keys to the kingdom. See, God's design for man is that he wanted to partner with us. The design was that heaven would actually overlap with earth and that the created human beings would actually get to partner with the creator and, and, and have dominion over the earth and, and share the keys to the kingdom, if you will. But when we chose to rebel against God, we actually gave the keys away. And so... The, the power and the authority when sin entered the world has actually been handed over to um, demonic and, and, and evil forces. And, and we refer to this as, as, as many different things, Satan, um, demons, and the devil. But Jesus steps onto the scene, and the brilliant thing is that he's actually the king of the kingdom. And he steps onto the scene and, and as he uh, overcomes the temptations, he, he says, I'll take those keys back. And so this is where we're at right now. He's stepping onto the scene of his public ministry, keys in hand, king of the kingdom. And we're about to find out what happens. So let's read um, from... 16 through to 30. We'll have that up on the screen. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town 
and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There's a lot right here, and we're actually going to look at a few other things after that as well. But three things I want to I want to kind of hone in on just in the verses that we've just read that take place. Firstly, Jesus reveals his identity blatantly, outright says to the people that he grew up with, "I'm the Messiah." And second thing that I want to look at is. Um, Um, his purpose he describes to them this is why i'm here he says this is who i am and this is why i'm here this is my mission this is my purpose and then thirdly i want to i want to look at their response because it's it's kind of a two-part response where they're kind of wowed for a little bit and then they try to kill him so (laughs) so let's dive on in he reads this passage from Isaiah, a prophecy that for for we've got to understand i want us to try and put ourselves in the shoes of these of these jewish people that they've literally grown up in a culture that from children they are memorizing scripture now maybe if you grew up in sunday school like me you got a sticker if you memorized a verse but then you forgot it the next week it wasn't like that they would literally memorize whole books of the bible now, whether or not it had penetrated the heart, that's a whole nother topic. But they had it written on their brain, the scriptures, and, and, and how everything linked up and, and what it was pointing to. And they knew that there was this figure called a Messiah um, that, that was promised. And they, they could see that as the biblical narrative went on, that's what was going on. And they knew that this this passage that Jesus quoted, Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses, they knew that that was a specific passage literally about this figure called the Messiah. And so in, in verse 21, when Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, there is no question, there is no doubt in their minds that when he said that, he was saying, I'm it. I'm I'm the guy. Can you believe that? Can you imagine me just rolling into my hometown where I grew up and um, went to school with that guy and unclogged that guy's toilet and milked that guy's cow? Can you imagine? This is what's taking place. I think to help further kind of get ourselves in into the mindset of this culture, I want to just lay a little bit of a foundation of this word Messiah, where we see it in the Bible and how it begins to find um, some cohesion and how it begins to connect together. This word is actually a Hebrew word that we've kind of just begun to use, and it means anointed. And this word anointed comes from um, a ritual that would take place when a king or a soon-to-be king was being um, brought in to, to that royal position. And so what would happen is the priest would get holy oil and he would anoint this king to be on his forehead or as we say, forehead. 
And so that's where that's what this word means. And so it was this ritual that was symbolizing this person being set apart or consecrated for a, a huge responsibility and, and for a purpose for God. That's what this word anointed means. And the Hebrew word is Messiah. And so it's kind of this broad idea. And the reality is that uh, we, we see um, the phrase anointed one actually referring to other characters than than Jesus. And, and we see um, in First Samuel, King Saul referred to as the anointed. King David in Psalm 28, King Solomon in Second Chronicles. And this word anointed where we, where we get Messiah, this, this is actually being referred to as these kings. But there are also, there's also a time where the whole nation of Israel is referred to as the anointed ones in First Chronicles chapter 16. But in each of these situations, the people described as anointed were, they, they had a few things in common. They were chosen by God. Um, they were descended from a royal line. And they were set apart for a specific purpose and a huge responsibility. But the heartbeat of this figure, capital M, Messiah, who would come to be known as Messiah, finds its roots in the very beginning of the biblical narrative. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and this is God speaking to Satan after he's deceived Adam and Eve. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And right there, that part, he shall bruise your head. That's speaking about the promised Messiah. This is the first prophetic word that is supposed to get us to start looking toward what will be become um, a concept that is known as the better Adam or, or the better Moses. Um, somebody that, that won't stuff it up, basically. And so... These are signposts and they're intentionally woven through scripture in the lives and in the stories um, of these biblical characters and and in the specific um, prophetic accounts that are pointing toward this capital M Messiah, this anointed one, this figure that we're waiting for because we we need help. We can't do this. And that, that's what begins to start stitching itself together. See, I'm convinced that the Bible um, is absolutely masterfully, if that's a word, wonderfully created and woven together this, this tapestry that God has divinely written through man all for a specific purpose to point us to Jesus. And the fact that we see this concept of an anointed one talking about other people shouldn't distract us from the capital A anointed one, but it actually should be light bulb moments of more instances that are starting to point us toward the Messiah, the King. And we see this all the way through. This is how the Bible is. And once you start to see this, you can't. You can't get away from the signposts, the types, the allegories that are all helping us on our way to see Jesus. A set apart savior 
who would set his people free. This figure that they were well aware of that the scriptures were alluding to. This is the figure he was saying. It's me. It's astounding. It's incredible. And so that's who, that's who he's announcing that he is. But he also, in reading specifically from Isaiah 61, he's saying, this is what I'm here to do. He could have read many, many um, prophetic words that were um, about the Messiah. But he chose this one specifically. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's saying, I'm here to bring the kingdom. I'm here to bring the good news. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is is the reality where the rule and reign of God is is here. And he's saying, I'm the king. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm here. And so that means the kingdom's here. And so that's good news because when the kingdom is having its way on earth, finally, people are getting to experience the type of life they were always created to experience. It's an upside down kingdom. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here to set people free. And the thing that wasn't quite registering with the people that he's talking to that we've got to understand is that they were under Roman occupation. They weren't free people. And so when he's saying, I'm here to set people free, liber- liberty for the captive, he's like, that. you can only imagine that, that they're thinking, get rid of these Romans. But, he, but this, we've got to understand that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom in terms of how the world looks at it. And so setting people free, his first priority is your spiritual bondage. Because aside from Jesus, we are in chains. And being free spiritually is far better than being free from Roman occupation. Being free spiritually is far better from from any kind of of slavery that we, that we might find ourselves in. That's his number one priority. And it's not that he doesn't, he doesn't care about the other kinds of bondage that we're in. And, and there is story after story of the people that have been set free, um, from addictions, um, from, 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 uh, from sex trafficking, from all kinds of slavery that this world brings. But Jesus, he, he's here to bring about a restoration of our spiritual bondage. That was his priority. That was the good news. And, and this was the beginning of his, his walk to the cross. This was the beginning. He's saying the kingdom is here. Realize this is who I am. Follow me in my ways because what I'm going to do on the cross is actually going to be the means by which this freedom will come. It's going to be the means by which the chains will break. Because you're captive to your sin. And I'm the one that holds the key to the lock that you've tried so hard to pick. Can you see? That I hold the keys. And I hear him say this. And and in verse 22. You see this contrast. 
And it literally says, they marveled and they spoke well at his gracious words. And, and if we could just imagine, could, could you imagine Jesus preaching the gospel? Like we have this account that he reads from Isaiah 61, but I'm, I'm convinced he gave them a darn good preach. <laughs> like, can you imagine he was laying down the gospel? He was preaching the kingdom in a way I don't have words to describe. That, and then he holds the keys that he has the power to bring about freedom. And they marveled at it. They thought, this is good. This sounds good. He was gracious in his approach. And as that tried to soak in, all of a sudden the wall came back up and someone yells out, isn't that Joseph's son? <laughs> you guys, it didn't quite get through. Before them was the boy that they'd grown up kicking the ball with in the street. They'd learned to memorize Genesis with. That they'd gone to school with. Probably, probably fixed a few chairs for him. Probably bought some bread from this guy. Probably said hello to that guy every morning on his way to get Probably not coffee. <laughs> they had an expectation that didn't line up with the man that stood before them. Expectation is a very dangerous thing. We, um, over the period of, of the last year, have been able to do some renovations on on the house that we rent from Jenna's dad. And it's been a really, really long process. And maybe if you've done any renovations yourself, it, it can turn into a long process. And whether that be just because of time or motivation or money, all of these things. But I don't know about you, but it can be so easy on a project like that to have an expectation that it's going to look a certain way and it's going to happen um, in a certain amount of time. And often that on renovation projects, it doesn't happen that way at all. It costs more. Um, it takes way longer. And I'm, I'm such a detail-oriented person. Like, and so if I'm working on something myself, even when it's done, I can never not see the imperfection. And so my expectation often never lines up, which can be really bad. And what happens when our expectations don't line up with, with the end result is that we miss every amazing blessing and every stepping stone that takes place along the journey. You know what I'm saying? When expectations become the focal point, we easily miss the work of the Lord in our lives. And become blind to the breakthrough and the blessings he provides. That was just a little example about a house renovation. But I bet we do it with our walk with the Lord a lot. Do you have expectations in your walk with the Lord of 
how he should work, maybe the chains he should break, the people he should um, help you to get along with or who he should make apologize. And it doesn't often happen the way that we want it to happen. And when our expectation isn't isn't quite uh, realized, we feel like God's done nothing. How horrible that we've missed the breakthrough that he's given today. Now, I know these guys knew him from childhood, and that would be so weird if your childhood friend told you they were God. <laughs> Look, I understand. It's a little bit hard to swallow. But he was God. It was God, you guys. It wasn't like me saying to old mate down the street. It wasn't. It's not the same thing because he was God. Can you imagine a friend that you watched grow up that never sinned? He never, ever stumbled. He never held a grudge. He never stole something. He never bragged about anything. He was loving and gracious. Even when everyone else, even if he got a wedgie, he probably, he probably would have said, give me another one, boys. That's, that's a different, that's a different story. In verse, in verse 14, oh, 15, sorry. No, verse 14. It says that a report about him went throughout the surrounding regions. So not only had they seen this perfect, blameless child grow up in the ways of the Lord, they begin to hear stories that he's healing people. They begin to hear, hear things that are lining up with the biblical narrative of what this Messiah character might be like. Maybe they'd heard whispers of the virgin, the virgin story. Maybe they had. And yet, no, it's just Joseph's son. And the Lord knew that they hadn't really come to appreciate his true identity and worth. And knowing their hearts, he anticipated they'd want him to perform miracles for them. Like they'd heard him doing in Capernaum. He knew they wanted him to prove that he was the Messiah. And in response to their hardness of heart, Jesus gives them two Old Testament examples of prophets who were rejected by the people of Israel. He tells, he tells this story of um, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were closed up and there was a famine, that he sent Elijah to none of the Israelites, but only Zarephath in the, the land of, of Sidon, who was a woman and who was a widow, and he also says that there were many lepers in Israel at that time. 
But he, he sent Elisha to none of them, but only Naaman, who was a, a Syrian. And so put ourselves in the context right here. They, they were kind of drawn in for a while, and then they're like, no, nah, it's just Joseph's son. And so they're rejecting his claim to be the Messiah. And so in the midst of that rejection, and in the midst of him knowing that they're going to want some proof, he gives them these examples of these Old Testament prophets who were rejected too. And all of a sudden it becomes clear that his hometown is becoming a picture of all of Israel. Just like he was rejected in his hometown, he knew soon I'm going to be rejected by my, all of my people too. The mastery of God is that even when his people reject him and miss it all, his blessing isn't stopped. Because God's redemptive plan has always been for all people at all times. And even though it was his plan to choose a people that, that in turn would come to know him and be a conduit of his blessing and of his truths to the nations around him, he gives these stories to show that even when they mess it up and choose their own way instead of him, he still blesses the nations. And he kind of rubs salt in the wound by choosing people that were women, lepers, and Gentiles. All people that were unclean and, and so far away from um, being worthy of God in the eyes of these Jews. In the road that they had begun to walk of religiosity, they had, they had become blinded from God's compassion to the nations. And even though, even as it was true that God's blessing still reached the down and outs, the outcasts in the midst of, of Israel's rebellion, Jesus knew that even as the whole nation of Israel will turn against him and hang him on a cross, his blessing and his plan of redemption would not be thwarted. It would reach the nations once again. Praise, praise be to the Lord. They heard these things and tried to throw him off a cliff. And there's a subtle little miracle where it just says that he just slipped away. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Like there's this angry mob and they're just totally surrounding him, about to push him off. And then next thing you know, well, where'd he go? That's, a, that's amazing. Is that not proof enough for you guys? And so we see him revealing his identity. Revealing his mission, his purpose to, to preach the kingdom and the gospel. But what I think is absolutely awesome is that after that whole story in Nazareth, where they wanted a sign, they wanted proof, he didn't give it to them because he saw and knew that they had enough. They, had, they didn't need more. The very next part of the narrative is him doing everything that they wanted him to do. <laughs> he's not doing it for them, but he's doing it because it's his mission. And it's part of who he is. We're living in a culture fixated on evidence. And I, I'm not a big fan of it. You know, I think it's, it's great to, to look into the facts. 
Um, and it's great to, to know things for sure and not just believe things on a whim. But we're in a culture that is just so, so dogmatically fixated on proof and evidence that it actually blinds us from, from seeing what's right in front of us. Uh, one of my last trips uh, back to uh, America from Australia, I hadn't got my green card yet, and I had this temporary uh, work and travel permit. And I'm coming through and where you talk to the guy in the box <laughs> and sh- showing the passport and the travel document. And, and he was just a real meanie. And I I show him the card and he looks at me and he's like, what's this? And I'm like, oh, it's a a work and travel permit while I'm waiting for my green card. And he's like, what do you need a green card for? Well, um, got married to a girl from here and, you know, need to do that. And I'm thinking to myself, you know this stuff. Why are you asking me? (laughs) And so, you know, I'm just waiting for that. And he's like, he looks at me and he goes, out of all the girls in the world, why'd you have to marry an American? <sighs> well, it was the way she looked at me. And I, no, I, I, I just said, well, we fell in, like most people, fell in love and wanted to get married. And he looks at me and he goes, that's not an answer. I didn't say much after that. And they put me in a room for 45 minutes and ended up getting out. Literally, the card was right in front of him. He had all the documentation he needed as proof, as evidence. And yet he he just had to try and wring wring some kind of proof out of me, some kind of evidence, some kind of good story. And I thought that's that's an example of where we're at. That we're so fixated on evidence and, and proof and stats that we miss the wonderful evidence that's right in front of us. Here was Jesus, son of God, God in flesh, born of a virgin, sinless life, casting out demons. And he stands before his hometown and they they want more evidence. But, but we read um, the story of the rich man and Lazarus uh, it's this parable where these two men have passed away and there's there's this picture of, of a hell-like place and a big ravine and a heaven-like place. And and Lazarus is calling out to, uh, the rich man's calling out to Lazarus and he's like, can you give me a drink? And he's like, I can't, sorry. And then he's like, well, could could you please maybe go back and tell my family that this place is real? And And the parable goes on to say that They've got everything they need. That actually miraculous things happening in front of your eyes should not be the means by which we come to the Lord. And and there's amazing stories of that being a gateway to people coming to understand the gospel. And that's amazing. But we can't have our hearts set on the miracles being the thing that gets us over the line. We, we read in Romans that all creation proclaims the glory of God. Uh, not too long about uh, ago, Caleb was preaching about when Jesus was coming in and they were laying down um, the, the, the leaves in front of him. 
and, and the Pharisees are like, tell, tell the people to stop. He's like, even the rocks would cry out. It, it, creation's proclaiming the glory of God. Even the rocks would proclaim it. You don't need my miracles as proof. I am the proof. But he goes on and the evidence comes. And I love that. We read in verse 32 that as he begins um, to, to start casting out demons, healing the sick, that they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. Evidence that the spirit of the Lord was in fact in him because he had been anointed. He was recognized by a demonic spirit. Verse 34, this, this demonic spirit says, I know you are the Holy One of God. Evidence of his messianic identity. He had power to rebuke sickness and demons. Evidence of his power to set free those captive and oppressed by demonic spirits. Evidence of his power to heal the sick. I love that though he needs not give us evidence more than who he is, he does it anyway. What wonderful confirmation in our hearts that the Messiah is Jesus. And finishes, we finish off this, this chapter and he says from verse four, says from verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him, would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We see the long-awaited Messiah step onto the scene of his earthly ministry with power and authority. He was convinced of his purpose and his mission that no degree of rejection would prevent him from preaching the kingdom and paving the way to salvation. Jesus had an urgency to preach the kingdom. An urgency to preach the good news. That the message would not stop being shared. That he knew it had to go to the surrounding towns. And his heart for the good news has not changed. And we see uh, him telling the disciples in the Great Commission. That all authority in heaven has been given to me, he says. And go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. By his Spirit, because he rose again, because death could not hold him, his Spirit dwells in us. And that means that the authority given to him is given to us, not for our gain, for his, for his kingdom, for his glory. And the urgency that he had becomes the urgency we have. The message of the good news was preached then, but it's being preached today. Will we be a people that continue 
to go to the towns around us, to the people around us? Will, be a, will we be a people that, that aren't an insular church? Will we be a people so uh, knowing that we are filled with power and authority by the spirit of the living God and that the good news of the kingdom would penetrate this dark world, that we would be a light in this world? The Messiah, the anointed one, lives in us. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father God, that you had a redemptive plan. Thank you um, that you sent Jesus, the king of the kingdom, the anointed one who holds power and authority to bring about restoration in this broken world. Lord, we pray our eyes would be fixed on you, knowing we are filled with the fullness of you, knowing that that same urgency is what you've called us to bring to the world, Lord. Encourage us in these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.